This episode is sponsored by Robin. Do you think being an orthopedic surgeon has gotten more risky? It could be because of anything, from the economy to compliance concerns. If your answer is yes, you're not alone. According to a recent survey from Robin Healthcare, nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. It's no wonder, then, that a majority of doctors also say they're documenting more in their medical notes to protect themselves against malpractice claims, audits, and insurance denials. If that's what you're doing, you need to check out Robin. Robin does all the documentation for your patient visits and delivers notes and codes that help protect your practice. To discover how, visit robin.co slash orthobullets. That's robin.co slash orthobullets. This episode of the Orthobullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis represent a continuum of disease where there is a fracture of the pars interarticularis, that is spondylolysis, which may progress to anterior subluxation of one vertebral body anterior to the adjacent inferior vertebral body, otherwise known as spondylolisthesis. Diagnosis of spondylolysis alone can be challenging on imaging, and the ideal study is controversial. Radiographs, CT scan, and MRI may all play a role. Spondylolisthesis is diagnosed on a lateral radiograph. Treatment may be non-operative or surgical depending on the degree of back pain, malalignment of vertebral bodies, and neurological symptoms. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence of pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis, these conditions are relatively common and are seen in up to 6-7% to of adolescent athletes. These diagnoses are implicated in up to 47% of low back pain complaints in this population. As far as demographics, these conditions are higher in Native Americans. In terms of anatomic location, these conditions typically involve the pars of L5 and anterolisthesis of L5 relative to S1. As far as risk factors, prevalence of spondylolysis may be as high as 47% in certain athletes, like gymnasts, weightlifters, and football linemen. Other risk factors include contact sports and those involving repetitive hyperextension, for example linebackers, and finally other risk factors include a higher sacral table index, pelvic incidence, sacral slope, and lower sacral table angle. Moving on to etiology, the pathophysiology of these conditions represent a continuum of disease including a pars stress reaction, spondylolysis, ismic spondylolisthesis, otherwise known as spondylotic spondylolisthesis, and finally spondyloptosis. So a pars stress reaction is defined as sclerosis of the pars without complete bone disruption. Spondylolysis is defined as a complete fracture of the pars interarticularis. As far as the mechanism, know that defects are not present at birth and develop over time, and is seen in 4-6% of the population. Spondylolysis is usually activity-related and occurs from repetitive hyperextension. Moving on to ismic spondylolisthesis or spondylolytic spondylolisthesis, this is defined as forward translation of one vertebral segment over the one beneath it due to a pars defect. As far as risks of progression, know that approximately 15% of individuals with a pars interarticularis lesion have progression to spondylolisthesis. The larger the slip, the more likely it is to progress. For example, greater than a Meyerding type 2 results in a greater than 50% slip. In addition, dysplastic slips, like a Wiltsy type 1, are more likely to progress. As far as severity of the current slip, this correlates most strongly with pelvic incidence. Finally, in terms of spondyloptosis, this refers to 100% translation of one vertebra over the next caudal vertebra. 
in terms of genetics, know that these conditions are possibly related to an autosomal dominance inheritance pattern. Now let's talk about the classification of pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis. And the ones to know include the Wiltsey-Newman classification, the Marchetti-Bartolozzi classification, and the Meyerding classification. So starting with the Wiltsey-Newman classification, this is divided into five types. Type 1 corresponds to dysplastic and can be secondary to congenital abnormalities of the lumbosacral articulation, including mal-oriented or hypoplastic facets, sacral deficiency, and a poorly developed pars. The posterior elements are intact, meaning there is no spondylolysis. However, type 1 corresponds to more significant neurologic symptoms. Type 2 is divided into three subtypes, type 2A, 2B, and 2C. Type 2A refers to an ismic pars fatigue fracture. Type 2B refers to an ismic pars elongation due to a healed stress fracture. And type 2C corresponds to an ismic pars acute fracture. Type 3 is degenerative. Type 4 is traumatic. And type 5 is neoplastic. Moving on to the Marchetti-Bartolozzi classification, this is divided into two types, developmental and acquired. Developmental includes Wiltsy type 1 and 2, and acquired refers to traumatic, post-surgical, pathologic, and degenerative processes. Finally, moving on to the Meyerding classification, this is divided into five grades. Grade 1 corresponds to less than 25% translation. Grade 2 corresponds to 25 to 50% translation. Grade 3 corresponds to 50 to 75% translation. Grade 4 corresponds to 75 to 100% translation. And grade 5 corresponds to spondyloptosis. Moving on to the presentation of pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis, the classic history is a healthy, active adolescent who presents with acute onset of low back pain with athletic activity. As far as symptoms, know that many cases of spondylolysis are asymptomatic. However, when there are symptoms, there can be low back pain, leg symptoms, a lysthetic crisis, bowel and bladder symptoms, as well as cardioquina syndrome. So in terms of low back pain, know that there is no association between radiologic grade and clinical presentation, and know that symptoms include insidious onset of activity-related low back pain. Leg symptoms include buttock pain, hamstring tightness, which is the most common, and knee contracture, as well as radicular pain, specifically involving the L5 nerve root. A lysthetic crisis is severe back pain aggravated by extension and relieved by rest. It also includes neurologic deficit and hamstring spasm. Bowel and bladder symptoms are rare, and Cardioquina syndrome is also rare. Moving on to physical exam, on inspection, high-grade slash dysplastic patients may develop a, quote, heart-shaped buttock due to sacral prominence. Inspection may also reveal a flattened lumbar lordosis, and palpation may reveal a palpable step-off of the spinous process. As far as motion assessment, there may be limitation of lumbar flexion and extension. Be sure to measure the popliteal angle to evaluate for hamstring tightness. On neurovascular assessment, straight leg rays may be positive, and a rectal exam should be done if bowel and bladder symptoms are present. Provocative tests may reveal pain with a single limb standing lumbar extension. Finally, in terms of gait analysis, patients may walk with a crouch gait when symptoms are severe. Moving on to imaging, in the setting of a pars stress reaction and spondylolysis, as far as radiographic indications, note that AP and lateral views are indicated in all patients with a concern for spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis. On AP view, you may see sclerosis of the stress reaction, and a lateral view may show a defect in the pars in 80% of cases. Oblique views may show sclerosis and elongation in the pars interarticularis, otherwise known as the Scotty dog sign. Some studies have shown that the oblique does not provide more diagnostic information than an AP and a lateral radiograph, but does increase radiation exposure. A CT is the best study to delineate the anatomy of the lesion. 
Findings can include a pars stress reaction that will show up as sclerosis on x-rays and a CT scan. A single photon emission computer tomography or a SPECT scan was previously considered the best diagnostic adjunct when plane radiographs are negative. However, now it is rarely performed given unnecessary radiation exposure. You can also detect osteoid osteomas, sacroiliitis, osteitis pubis, and disc herniation with a SPECT scan. As far as the technique for a SPECT scan, this combines the technique of both a bone scan with a CT in order to help localize an area of abnormal activity seen on bone scan. An MRI is indicated in the setting of a negative radiograph with high suspicion, very acute presentation, and in the setting of any neurological deficits. As far as sensitivity and specificity, recent studies have shown MRI to be as sensitive and specific as a SPECT scan with the additional benefit of avoiding radiation exposure. Finally, a bone scan is an excellent screening tool for low back pain in children or adolescents. In terms of sensitivity and specificity, this is the most sensitive scan, however the lesion may be cold. Moving on to spondylolisthesis, as far as radiographic views, the lateral x-rays used to measure the slip angle and grade, and know that flexion and extension radiographs are used to evaluate instability. As far as important measurements on radiographs, the ones to know include the slip grade, slip angles, pelvic incidence, pelvic tilt, and sacral slope. So as far as the slip grade, know that slippage on plain lateral radiographic imaging is measured in accordance to the vertebra below. So the caudal vertebra is divided into four parts. Grade 1 means a translation of the cranial vertebra of up to 25%, grade 2 of up to 50%, grade 3 of up to 75%, grade 4 up to 100%, and grade 5 describes the ptosis of the cranial vertebra. As far as slip angles, in terms of the methodology to determine the slip angle, first you would draw a line on the posterior aspect of the sacrum, or line B, 2. Mark the cephalad point of S1 with a dot, 3. You will draw a line C through the cephalad point that is perpendicular to line B. 4. You will draw a line on the inferior end plate of L5, or line D. And then 5. You will measure an angle between line C and line D. Be sure to review this image on orthobullets.com or on the Bullets app. So the slip angle is the most important determinant for non-union and pain. An angle of greater than 45 to 50 degrees is associated with a greater slip progression, instability, and development of post-op pseudoarthrosis. Moving on to pelvic incidence, pelvic incidence equals the pelvic tilt plus the sacral slope. This is determined with a line that is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head. A second line is drawn perpendicular to a line drawn along the S1 end plate, intersecting the point in the center of the S1 end plate. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic incidence. Be sure to refer to the figure on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. The pelvic incidence correlates with the severity of disease and the pelvic incidence has direct correlation with the myerding newman grade. Moving on to pelvic tilt, pelvic tilt equals pelvic incidence minus sacral slope. This is determined with a line that is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head, and then a second vertical line, parallel with the side margin of the radiograph, is drawn intersecting the center of the femoral head. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic tilt. Again, be sure to refer to the image on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. Finally, sacral slope equals the pelvic incidence minus the pelvic tilt. This is determined with the line that is drawn parallel to the S1 end plate, and then a second horizontal line that is parallel to the inferior margin of the radiograph is drawn, and then the angle between these two lines is the sacral slope. Be sure to refer to the image on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. Moving on to CT, this is the best study to diagnose and delineate the anatomy of the PARS defect. And finally, an MRI is indicated if neurologic symptoms are present, and it's useful to diagnose associated central and foraminal stenosis. 
Moving on to treatment of pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation alone with no activity limitations, which is indicated in asymptomatic patients, and know that this is regardless of slip grade, which does not correlate with clinical presentation. Know that return to contact sports in this setting is controversial. There is limited evidence to guide surgeons following surgical management, and the decision must be individualized. Some data shows that patients who stop sports for at least three months have improved outcomes compared to those who continue to play. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, patients typically do well and remain asymptomatic. Other non-operative options include physical therapy and activity restriction. This is indicated for symptomatic ischemic spondylolysis and symptomatic low-grade spondylolisthesis. The technique involves physical therapy that should be done for six months and includes hamstring stretching, pelvic tilts, and abdominal strengthening. As far as outcomes, most patients improve and do not require surgery. However, watch low-grade dysplastic lesions carefully as there is a higher chance of progression. Another non-operative management modality is bracing for 6 to 12 weeks. Indications include an acute par stress reaction spondylolysis, ischemic spondylolysis that has failed to improve with physical therapy, and low-grade spondylolisthesis that has failed to improve with physical therapy. The technique typically includes a TLSO. As far as outcomes, know that brace immobilization is superior to activity restriction alone for acute stress reaction, spondylolysis. Operative options include PARS interarticularis repair, L5-S1 posterolateral fusion, plus or minus an ALIF, plus or minus a sacroiliac fusion. Another option is an L4-S1 posterolateral fusion, plus or minus reduction, plus or minus sacroiliac fusion, plus or minus ALIF. So starting with the PARS interarticularis repair, this is indicated for an L1 to L4 ismic defect that has failed non-operative management, and it's also indicated in multiple PARS defects. As far as outcomes, a PARS interarticularis repair is typically superior to fusion procedures as it preserves motion. Moving on to an L5-S1 posterolateral fusion, plus or minus A-lift, plus or minus sacroiliac fusion, this is indicated for an L5 spondylolysis that has failed non-operative treatment. It's also indicated in the setting of a low-grade spondylolisthesis, that is amyrdin grade 1 and 2, that has failed non-operative treatment, is progressive, has neurologic deficits, and is dysplastic due to high propensity for progression. As far as return to sport postoperatively after an L5-S1 posterolateral fusion, plus or minus an A-lift, plus or minus sacroiliac fusion, there is some evidence to support that an A-lift may help return to competitive sports. Most surgeons allow return to non-contact sports 3 to 6 months following fusion and return to contact sports in 6 to 12 months. However, this is controversial. As far as outcomes, patients typically do well with this procedure and return to sport in 3 to 6 months. Finally, moving on to an L4-S1 posterolateral fusion plus or minus reduction plus or minus sacroiliac fusion plus or minus A-lift. This is indicated for a high-grade spondylolytic spondylolisthesis that is a myrdin grade 3, 4, or 5. Note that reduction is extremely controversial with no accepted guidelines. As far as outcomes, patients typically do well but may have greater motion limitations with multilevel fusion, and know that overaggressive reduction techniques may result in neurologic impairments. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with the PARS interarticularis repair, the approach will be a posterior midline approach to the lumbar spine. As far as the technique, be sure to repair the PARS defect with screw fixation, tension wiring, or screw and a sublaminar hook technique. Decompression is indicated if there's clinical symptoms of stenosis. Contraindications include disc degeneration, so be sure to obtain an MRI for surgical planning. Moving on to an L5-S1 posterolateral fusion plus or minus an A-lift, the approach will also be a posterior midline approach to the lumbar spine. As far as the technique, 
Decompression only is indicated if there are clinical symptoms of stenosis or radiculopathy. The technique will also involve in-situ fusion with bone grafting with or without instrumentation. Postoperatively, usually patients will be immobilized in a TLSO. Finally, moving on to an L4-S1 posterolateral fusion, plus or minus reduction, plus or minus sacroiliac fusion, plus or minus A-lift, the approach will also be a posterior midline approach to the lumbar spine. The technique will involve reduction as well as fusion slash decompression. Reduction may be done with instrumentation or positioning. As far as pros of reduction, you can restore sagittal alignment and reduce lumbosacral kyphosis. Cons include a risk of significant complications, that is 8 to 30%, including L5 nerve root injury, which is the most common nerve root injury with reduction. Other complications can include sexual dysfunction and catastrophic neurologic injury. Finally, moving on to fusion slash decompression, know that this surgical option usually is instrumented, and the addition of decompression and anteroposterior or 360-degree fusion is associated with more in-hospital complications. Know that the use of interbody cages in this population has decreased significantly, while costs associated with the treatment in general have increased over time. Now, let's talk about some complications. The ones to know include neurologic deficits, pseudoarthrosis, slip progression, and hardware failure. So, in terms of neurologic deficits, consider neuromonitoring during reduction, especially in a high-grade slip. Note that L5 nerve root injury is the most common neurological complication. Finally, let's end this review session talking about prognosis. So, know that most symptomatic patients can be successfully managed non-operatively. In patients who fail non-operative management, spinal fusion results in 90% success rates. Return to sports is controversial. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 14-year-old boy reports a two-month history of low back pain with no known trauma. The pain is worse with activity and relieved by rest, although he does report difficulty with prolonged sitting in school. He reports no history of radicular pain and denies any numbness, tingling, or weakness in his legs. On exam, he has slight tenderness to palpation over the lower back, 5 out of 5 strength in the lower extremities, and a negative straight leg raise test. The lumbar spine demonstrates full range of motion, but he reports pain with back extension. Initial AP and lateral radiographs of the spine are negative. Which of the following should be ordered next to determine the patient's diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Flexion slash extension and oblique radiographs. 2. MRI. 3. Discogram. 4. Bone scan with SPECT. And 5. CT myelogram. The correct answer to this question is 2. MRI. So this patient presents with symptoms consistent with spondylolysis. The best next step in diagnosis would be to obtain an MRI. To quickly review, spondylolysis is a common cause of low back pain in children and adolescents. The most sensitive physical examination finding is pain with back extension. Plain radiographs are useful for initial screening but are not as sensitive as other advanced imaging modalities and may miss early lesions. Although bone scan would spect is very sensitive and specific for spondylolysis, recent studies have shown MRI to have equal sensitivity and specificity while also having the advantage of avoiding unnecessary radiation exposure. Ladonio et al. performed a systematic review to evaluate the use of diagnostic imaging methods for pediatric lumbar spondylolysis. They found that plain radiographs are considered a first-line diagnostic test for suspected spondylolysis, but validation evidence is lacking. Bone scan with SPECT is superior to plain radiographs but limited by high rates of false positive and false negative results and by high radiation doses. CT is considered the gold standard and most accurate modality for detecting the bony defect and assessment of osseous healing but exposes the pediatric patient to ionizing radiation.
MRI, on the other hand, is reported to be as accurate as CT, is useful in detecting early stress reactions of the pars without a fracture, and avoids exposing the patient to radiation. Rush et al. performed a study to evaluate the use of magnetic resonance imaging in the evaluation of spondylolysis. They found that MRI is an effective method with 92% sensitivity for detecting PARS injuries, possessing the ability to detect stress reactions when a fracture is not visible on CT scan, thereby allowing early treatment of these pre-lysis lesions. They report that the sensitivity of MRI is comparable with that of other diagnostic modalities such as bone scan with the advantage of no radiation exposure. Toft et al. performed a systematic review to provide an evidence-based recommendation for when and how to employ imaging studies when diagnosing back pain is thought to be caused by spondylolysis in pediatric patients. They found that two-view plane films were the best initial study due to their efficacy, low cost, and low radiation exposure. However, in patients with unusual presentations or refractory courses, advanced imaging should be obtained, with MRI useful in early diagnosis and CT in more persistent courses. Beck et al. performed a retrospective study to assess the value of oblique radiographs in the diagnosis of spondylolysis in adolescents. They found that there is no difference in sensitivity and specificity between four-view and two-view studies. They therefore concluded that although oblique views have long been considered standard practice by some, their data could not identify a diagnostic benefit that might outweigh the additional cost and radiation exposure. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, Flexion, extension, and oblique radiographs are incorrect, as the radiographs provided by flexion, extension, and oblique radiographs should be avoided if possible in the evaluation of patients who present with classic spondylolysis-type symptoms. Answer 3, discogram, is incorrect, as the patient does not have any signs of a disc problem. Therefore, a discogram would not be helpful in this case. Answer 4, bone scan with SPECT is incorrect, as bone scan with SPECT was previously the gold standard for diagnosing spondylolysis in patients with negative radiographs. However, recent efforts to minimize radiation exposure in adolescents have led to MRI to be the preferred imaging modality. Finally, answer 5, CT myelogram is incorrect, as CT myelogram is not the best step in diagnosis and also involves unnecessary radiation exposure. And moving on to the final question. A 17-year-old male American football lineman presents with low back pain of insidious onset that is somewhat worse with activity. He has no neurologic complaints, night pain, or fevers. His symptoms have been present for a few years, but this is the first time he has sought medical attention. What physical examination finding is most likely to be found in this clinical scenario? And the choices are 1. Popliteal angle of 5 degrees. 2. Healed core tightness. 3. Increased femoral antiversion. 4. Pain with lumbar extension in a single leg stance. And 5. Numbness of the skin of the anterolateral calf and dorsum of the foot. The correct answer to this question is 4. Pain with lumbar extension in single leg stance. So the patient demographics and clinical presentation are consistent with lumbar spondylolysis. Pain with lumbar extension is the most common physical exam finding. Note that office assessment of the patient with spondylolysis should note pertinent negatives that would signify other causes of back pain. The history is most commonly negative for neurologic symptoms such as weakness or numbness, although patients will occasionally have radicular pain. On exam, patients may have localized spasm or tenderness, step off if there is spondylolisthesis, and hamstring tightness. The most common finding is pain with lumbar extension. McCleary et al. reviewed the diagnosis and treatment of spondylolysis in athletes. They identified three types of patients with spondylolysis. One, a female dancer or gymnast who is hyperlordotic with increased motion and flexibility. 
to a male weightlifter or football player undergoing a growth spurt with decreased motion and flexibility, especially of the spinal erectors, and three, a novice athlete undergoing vigorous preparation for a new sport with poor core strength and flexibility. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, popliteal angle of five degrees, and answer two, heel cord tightness are both incorrect, as hamstring, not gastroxoleus tightness, is characteristic of patients with spondylolysis, and this could result in a large popliteal angle. Although this patient could have a popliteal angle of 5 degrees, pain with lumbar extension is more likely. Answer 3, increased femoral antiversion is incorrect, as femoral antiversion is not related to spondylolysis. Finally, answer 5, numbness of the skin of the anterolateral calf and the dorsum of the foot is incorrect, as in the absence of disc herniation, numbness is not typical of patients with spondylolysis. That's all for this review about pediatric spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.